So hello and welcome to the podcast of the European Society of Anesthesiology and Intensive Care. I'm your host, Dr. Yael Lichter. I'm an ICU and ECMO specialist from the Tel Aviv uh, Medical Center in Israel. Today we will be speaking about uh, challenging dogmas in ICU readmission uh, with uh, colleagues of mine from the University of London College Hospital in London, UK. So uh, I'm happy to introduce uh, uh, Gillian Harting, who is a lead nurse from uh, the PERT team, and Mr. John Welsh, who is a critical care consultant nurse and a national clinical advisor at the NHS uh, England. So hello to both of you. Hi, Hi Del. Um, I think we all had the patients who improved and who we thought were doing well enough to be discharged from ICU, but then soon enough they deteriorated and bounced back to be readmitted, sometimes within as little as a, as a few hours even. And it's very frustrating for everyone involved, the ICU staff, the ward staff, and of course the patient and the family. And we keep asking ourselves what happened and did we discharge too quickly or misevaluated the patient's condition or maybe the ward wasn't suitable for this patient. So we're here to discuss this uh, topic today. We'll try to analyze the reasons of such readmissions and maybe pitfalls in the process of uh, discharge and also try to offer ways to identify those high-risk patients and ensure that uh, they are being taken care of uh, in the ward uh, afterwards. So I'd like to start uh, by asking you, John, um, what is the actual definition of ICU readmission and what data do we have in the literature about rates of readmissions and the main reasons? Okay, so I think I'll start just by saying what does a safe discharge look like? What does an effective discharge look like? And very simply, it's about being sure that the patient is in the right state. And that means both medically, it usually means that the organ failures you treat in critical care have resolved, but also in terms of their nursing care and their nursing needs. And that's often a neglected bit. So the medics say, well, the patient doesn't have any organ failure. And they forget to think about how easy will it be for a ward which has one nurse for eight patients or 10 patients to manage, let's say, a tracheostomy or NIV or complex chest drains or a patient that is delirious or has multiple IVs. And by the way, that's not just about the patient. It's about what else is going on in the ward. So that's really crucial. So they've got to go to the ward in the right state and to the right ward at the right time. We know that outcomes are worse if you discharge out of ours, but it's sometimes difficult. And in the UK, we probably discharge about a quarter of our patients um, out of ours. There's a delay and they don't go to the ward until the nighttime or the weekend. And the right people have got to know. So the ward team has to know. And if it happens out of ours, the on-call team has to know. And maybe they didn't get informed in the first place because the initial conversation was with uh, was with the daycare team. So, and as well as that, we have to think about the little details. For example, have we managed to sort out all the medicines? Have we stopped all the ICU medicines? And have we switched the patient to appropriate medicines on the ward? And that's also something we have to do. And it's this is really a risk assessment. If you uh, want the patient to be safe, you've got to feel that they're in the right state. If you keep them too long, that's putting them at risk because being in a, an environment they don't, don't need to be in, like intensive care, puts them at risk. And also, if you keep them too long, it deprives someone else of a bed. 
So that's a risk assessment too. Now, what are the rates like? Well, it depends on your definition of an early readmission. Um, in the UK, we say within 48 hours. And we say that if they'd come back to you in less than 48 hours, probably you got some part of the discharge process wrong. If it's more than 48 hours, it's probably due to some new problem. If they managed three or four or five days, it would be some new problem that you couldn't have predicted. Now, the rates vary in the literature from 0%, and that probably in a place where you have entirely elective surgical patients, to maybe 10 or 15% if uh, you've got complex medical patients to deal with. Here in the UK, the average, by the way, across all of our ICUs in the country is 1.3%. So about one in 100 uh, com com comes back here. And in the end, that will mostly be down to case mix and, and capacity. Um, thank you for that, John. Um, I think that um, we can't disconnect it from the system itself because it dictates a lot of uh, the reasons for readmissions and also the rate. So, for example, in some places like in Israel, the ICU is only uh, very high acuity and the patients are being discharged to a separate level two care and only then are being stepped down towards where as in other places like in UCLA, for example, in London, everything happens level three, two and three, both in the ICU and then the discharge is directly to the ward. And then there is the PER team who's um, following up on them. So I wanted to ask you, um, Gillian, if you can please briefly describe the PER team, what it is, what it mainly focuses on, what its main goal is and what it is, uh, its role is in the process of ICU discharge. Thank you, Yale. Um, well, PERT at UCLA stands for Patient Emergency Response and Resuscitation Team and is a critical care outreach team. These teams are usually in the UK nurse-led and came about um, from 2000-2001. We had a change in government in the UK. We had a different way of looking at how we delivered intensive care. And the remit then were experienced intensive care nurses to go out onto wards spot patients who were deteriorating or at risk of deteriorating and try and prevent them going to intensive care in the first place and reduce cardiac arrests. And that, that fits very much with the title of our team, Patient Emergency Response and Resuscitation Team. But one of the other things we were tasked with in critical care outreach was to support patients stepping down from intensive care units. So to provide that bridge going the other way from intensive care to the ward rather than on the other side where it was the ward to intensive care. So um, the, the literature on this is is um, not uh, not definitive. You'll read some studies, and I was having a little look earlier there, there's studies from 2020, 2018 done in, in Europe that show that there really isn't much evidence that these teams support um, patients from readmitting once they step down. Uh, earlier studies have shown, like 2014 and before that, that actually these teams do support patients when they, better when they go out from uh, from intensive care and do prevent the, the uh, readmissions. So to go back to your point there, you made earlier, Yale, about it being the, the system within which you work, um, and even sometimes even more granular than that, and the, the specific patient, and, and John's already alluded to that, and, you know, all their different needs, physical, psychological, uh, everything that goes on for those patients after an intensive care stay. 
So what our team um, tend to do is try and see those patients who are about to leave intensive care before they leave and try and troubleshoot anything that we think might become an issue for them on the wards. Um, sometimes things that intensive care teams don't necessarily see as an issue. So we might get a little bit vexed about a potassium of, of 3.2 <laughs> and ITU might think, oh, that'll be all right for a while. But knowing on the wards, actually you might need to top that up on the magnesium of 0.6. Maybe we could get that a little bit higher before they leave because we know that on a ward, they won't necessarily have the bloods checked so often and replacing those electrolytes might be more difficult. So what the PERT team bring here at UCLH is, is that... Um, that view of the patient all the way through. So we're intensive care nurses who who know what those patients have been through from the multi-organ failure to the rehab to being ready for step down and also aware of, of what the wards can deliver. Um, and John's talked about risk assessment and that's absolutely what it is. And sometimes there's a bit of a trade-off. You might be stepping someone down a little bit earlier because you're pressed for beds and maybe an emergency has come up that wasn't predicted and the bed is needed on the intensive care unit and maybe you do have to send a patient out in the evening or overnight and where the critical care outreach team the PERT team come in is helping prepare for that and also going and following the patient up on the wards knowing what their needs are going to be and what they need to fill those gaps why they're um why they're stepping down so physical needs, making sure their vital signs are monitored properly, their fluid balance, the bloods, the positioning in the bed, keeping their chest clear, all that holistic nursing um, that the PERT team deliver, supporting the ward teams to deliver that too and, um, and trying to prevent deterioration that's avoidable in those patients and also providing reassurance to the patients and the relatives because as John mentioned, they've gone from you know 1 to 1, 1 to 2, down to 1 to, one to 8, 1 to 10. And that can be quite frightening for patients. So providing that sort of psychological safety net as well. Um, thank you very much for that. I, I do want to ask you, though, what, what are the pitfalls of such a system in which the patient is uh, discharged directly from an ICU to a, to a very, to the wards which can deliver uh, significantly less monitoring and treatment? So what, what are the pitfalls of such a system? Um, both of you, please, if you can... Yeah, so I don't think we would very often discharge directly from ICU uh, straight to the ward, <clears throat> unless it was a patient that had just come in for uh, 12 or 18 hours of intensive monitoring uh, post-surgery, so a, a PACU-type uh, situation. Uh, within our critical care unit, uh, and I use the word deliberately, we have both level three beds, that's the old-fashioned intensive care bed, and level two beds. That's the high dependency type bed. And the beds can be flexed either way. So all of our beds in theory could be level three or in theory they could all be level two. So what that enables us to do is within the same department to take a patient from level three care where they'll be getting one-to-one -one input down to one-to-two or one-to-three input in, in, in level two. And because it's all in the same department, hopefully the quality of the communication and the handover is quite good and then from there they could go to a ward whereas if you work in a place where the the high dependency unit is entirely separate they've got to have a handover from the icu down to that area the separate uh, high dependency unit and then again down to the ward so that's two handovers and it's probably true that the more handovers you have in a patient's journey uh, the more possibilities there are for errors or omissions creeping into the process I don't think there's much evidence around that, but um, th that's the way that's the way that I see it. 
So we see more of an easy transition if the first part of the journey all takes part, all takes place in in the same department. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question there, Yale. Um, thinking about what the pitfalls might be. Um, one of the things being possible the skilling of the wards. Now, I know here at UCLH, we will only send our tracheostomies, for example, to specific wards, head and neck wards, and the respiratory ward where they have they have those skills. Um, and we have a specialist team that go ride and manage our tracheostomy patients independent of the um, the PERT team. And those nurses and those um, allied health professionals probably have way, way more skills than the PERT team have in managing tracheostomies. Uh, and indeed other wards that, that would normally take tracheostomies, whereas in uh, another hospital not far from here, their equivalent of the PERT team manage all the tracheostomies out on the ward and the ward staff and there are much more supported by their PERT team equivalents than than we would be. But again, I think it's back down to what what your wards are there to deliver and what their specialist skills are. So really, if you've got a deteriorating patient or a patient at risk of deteriorating, having a bunch of nurses such as the PERT nurses who are really skilled in, those, in that sort of patient and deliver that sort of care and spotting the deteriorations is really, really useful and also supporting those wards to deliver that level of care. But when the wards are, you know, we have all those tiny specialisms, um, you know, nurses who are really expert in specific urology surgery, GI surgery, things that they know much more about than we do, well, then should they really be expected to have the knowledge of everything? You know, it's all about working together and having a team approach. So you might say we've de-skilled, and certainly our ward staff, here don't do the things that we used to do on the wards like we don't really do cvp monitoring and and uh sort of simplish phasoactive drugs such as gtn we don't do that so much there anymore and actually that feels safer and better for patients because our critical care unit takes that level of a patient with the level of uh, nurse patient ratio and the level of monitoring so so there's no right and wrong to that answer, Yale, really, in terms of the pitfalls. I think some of the things like de of ward staff could be seen as a pitfall, but could also be seen that you're spotting those patients earlier and putting them into an area where they um, where they really get that level of care that they need. And so going into the ITU and again, stepping back down and like John said, like keeping that high dependency type area within the critical care unit, reducing the handovers and weaning the patient off slowly. So yeah, based I would say very much based on your um, the organisation within which you work and knowing what works best for your patients and your ward staff there. And there's one thing I would add, Yale, is that we know that there is a nursing and probably a medical staffing crisis pretty well everywhere. And that being the case, you probably want to cohort your at-risk patients as far as possible, and you can you can label the place where you cohort them however you want but one label and one approach would be to put them all into a into a critical care unit and and not pretend that you can look after patients scattered over an entire hospital um it's probably safer to cohort them so thank you both and um Lillian, you mentioned the skilling, the skills of the ward but you also mentioned monitoring and this is a very important part of, of discharge we know that on the one hand, it's very important to monitor those patients, but the wards are unable to provide such close monitoring the same way an ICU could. And I want to ask both of you um, about your opinion 
what your opinion is about the the options of remote monitoring and the um, maybe novel AI and computer-based algorithms and alarms that maybe can be used in in the wars you know advantages and disadvantages um the question is for both of you I know John you were involved in uh in uh, looking into one of those devices yeah so uh, in fact I was part of an uh, a European Union sponsored program that brought in five big hospitals across Europe to look at a whole range of systems and there's one in particular that we've that we've settled on but we've learned a lot about the whole range of devices that are out there and I guess um, two things to say about that um, one is that we have arrived at a device that we think uh, is very useful but we don't use it for ICU step downs uh, or not yet in fact what we're doing now is sending out patients who have had major surgery bariatric surgery in our hospital who would normally stay on a surgical ward overnight and uh, are going to a hotel now overnight being monitored remotely. And then the next step is to take patients that would normally have stayed in for two nights after bariatric surgery, higher risk cases, they're going to stay one night in the hospital and then have their second night in a hotel. So we're already working on these kinds of cases, but not yet for step down from, from the ICU. That might be the next step. Having said all of that, in the end, you've got to be a little bit careful about trusting some of these systems. Some of them are being oversold. They've not all been validated properly on sick patients. And in the end, somebody's got to be monitoring the monitors. And who are those people? And how equipped are they? And how much time do they have to respond? Gillian, you seem a bit uneasy. <laughs> uh I am a little bit, maybe because I'm a bit older and that whole prospect of AI, right? Although I'm not as old as John Welsh, so maybe it can't just be down to age, the fear of AI. Um, I, I think there is a role for remote monitoring. If I'd had major surgery, uh, would I want to be lying in a, in a hotel on my first or second night post-op with nobody to hand? I mean, yeah, that, uh, that does worry me. I think there's no substitution for a, a good nurse, an experienced nurse. Uh, who can interpret signs, who can spot things by looking at the patient. And independent of all that that monitoring, I mean, when, when John's talking there about monitoring, we're thinking about attaching patients to devices that look at their vital signs. There's much more to monitoring a patient than that. And it's that conversation, that putting your hands on, touching them, feeling them. And that therapeutic use of self as a healthcare professional, where you engage with a patient, you're talking to them, you know their family, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're treating the whole patient and not just some numbers on the screen. Now, it might be okay for some patients to go and lie in a hotel, you know, that are not, still not in their own bed uh, and attached to some remote monitoring. But really, I think this, that there is safety to be had in, in having healthcare professionals and a, a big shout out for, you know, registered nurses with experience who can see that difference and can talk to a patient, support them, answer their questions. And, um, you know, I don't think remote monitoring as a step down from ITU would give a patient the same reassurance as having a critical care nurse come into their bedside and saying, hi, just here to check on you. How are you? That's very different. So I think a combination of both probably for the future and um, Yale, not not one or the other a combination of both, I think. I, I definitely couldn't agree more. Um, we have just a couple of minutes left and we, we spent some time talking about the process of ICU discharge. But when we look at readmissions or fa failed discharge, if you wish, what exactly are we aiming at? I mean, surely we could 
if we cannot aim at zero percent, that means we're overusing the IC resources, maybe keeping people for too long. So what what would you say? What are we aiming at or how hard should we work on it if the rate is already quite low? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. Yeah. So at, at our hospital, as I, as I mentioned, about 1% of our patients are readmitted um, uh, within 48 hours. And of those, we get between one and two cases a month where we definitely could have done better. And it's almost always to do with that we didn't properly assess the nursing needs as well as the medical needs, or we didn't communicate properly or understand properly what was available um, at the ward end. And part of the issue is that very few of our ICU staff have actually worked on a ward to genuinely appreciate what might be available at the ward end. There's an assumption that the ward can manage all kinds of stuff and not appreciating that going from one-to-one care or one-to-two care on the ICU is just so different to one-to-eight or one-to-ten on the ward. Uh, And of course, there are also fewer doctors on the ward uh, and the doctors that are there will tend to be juniors and doctors in training. We have far more consultants in the ICU. So that's really, really important. So we have to appreciate that point to do it to do it properly. So I would say we could get down from 1.3% to you know, maybe 1%. Um, but as you say, if it was less than that, we'd probably be keeping patients for too long. Yeah, I agree. I think I think the 0% is, is a bit unrealistic and doesn't take into account the whole system. Um, I, I think, well, John, John's point there about the, you know, they look at the cases coming back in and I think there's there's value in that for sure because if stuff is avoidable, even if it's a whole system thing, you know, your flow's really pushed, there's too many people in ED, you've got to push patients out early. All that information needs to be known and the impact that that has on patients. So I think gathering that information, analysing when you have a readmission, what actually went on, um, what can you do to improve that? And that not just that information not just being within the intensive care unit, but sharing that wider to the medical directors and the board to try and help the whole system because ITU definitely doesn't work um, in isolation. It's it's part of the whole big machine. So I think the learning for improving is, is really important and being realistic about what you can achieve. So thank you both. Really fascinating conversation. Unfortunately, we really have to, uh, to wrap up. So I want to thank you everyone for listening to this episode in which we discussed the topic of ICU readmissions. We know that there is no one size fits all, but there are measures we can definitely employ to try to improve. Um, the Isaac releases monthly podcasts on the Isaac website and various streaming platforms. We hope uh, you will all join us for the next one as well. So thank you, everyone. <laughs>